The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 28th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Some people would say the book of Romans is the, uh, the crown jewel of the 66 books of the Bible. And so if there was a crown jewel within the crown jewel, some people say Romans 8 would be it. And so for the next several weeks, having started last week on Easter Sunday, for the next several weeks through the month of May, uh, we are going to be exploring this treasure trove of God's grace together. And as we're doing it, let me just encourage you with a couple of things. Uh, one, this would be an outstanding time for the next five weeks uh, to work with your family, work with your friends, work with your community group, your 3D group, work with someone to commit Romans chapter 8 to memory. Uh, it would do your heart and your soul tremendous good to commit this chapter of the Bible to memory. So this would be a great time to, to work on that with someone. Um, but also take some time throughout the week, sun, between the Sundays, uh, to read Romans chapter 8 slowly and deliberately. We're going to spend five weeks in Romans chapter 8. Many preachers spend two years in Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8 kind of like a topographic map. We're looking for all the elevated points, the high points, the, the lay of the lands and the patterns. We're not going to cut a path through Romans chapter eight, tree by tree. So take some time throughout the week. Read it slowly, read it deliberately. Follow the Apostle Paul's train of thought as you prepare for our time together that following Sunday. But as we do it and we, and we look for these high points of God's grace in Romans chapter eight, we're doing it with the intentionality to better understand and at the same time enjoy the grace of God for perpetual sinners. Perpetual sinners like me who, who wake up with the desire to glorify God with my life and, and with my heart and yet find myself in seeming unexplainable ways, exploding in frustration and, and immaturity at the youngest of my own children. Find myself spending the next several days laying down at night when everything gets quiet except my own mind, wondering how I could be such an absolute failure. Wondering if I caused some kind of irreversible harm, damage to their heart. Wondering and hearing the voice in my head, how can God's certain goodness still be committed to a dad like me? Friends, Romans chapter eight is... It's for Christians whom God has redeemed and yet go on sinning and wonder what in the world is happening. And at the worst of their moments, wonder, is this the moment when God's finally going to be done with me? Friends, the Apostle Paul is waiting for us at Romans chapter eight to open up the door that he might lead us into the good news of God's grace and deposit in our hearts the courage of the gospel and so for the next several weeks, we want to listen to the Apostle Paul. We want to listen to what he has to say, chiefly not just because God has preserved his word and inspired his word to us, but because Paul gets it. Paul gets us. Paul gets that reality because Paul is like us. So this morning, as we get ready to dive into Romans chapter 8, I want us to actually start reading back in Romans chapter 7 together. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, because Romans chapter seven leading into Romans chapter eight is for sinners just like you and I. 
So if you've got your Bibles, let's, let's start in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. And we're just going to read through the first few verses of Romans chapter 8 to, to hear it in its totality. Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that is dwelling within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But therefore, there is therefore, Paul says, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit of God. I start there in Romans chapter 7, not simply for context, but because one of the ways that the Apostle Paul helps us as he leads us through the doorway of Romans chapter 8 as he not only identifies with that battle and with that struggle, but Paul gives us some helpful language to understand what's going on in those moments. I don't know if you heard it as we began to read through chapter 7, but Paul talked about sin living in him or dwelling in him. Sin that was dwelling in his flesh. The law of sin that he saw at work in his life. The law of sin and death he talked about as he got into Romans chapter 8. All of those things together, you bring them together, they're what theologians call the reality of indwelling sin, the ongoing enemy of our soul, the ongoing enemy of God's glory, the ongoing enemy of our assurance of God's favor and of our joy. And so this morning, if we're going to not just better understand what God has done for sinners like you and I, but actually enjoy the good news that Paul has for us, we're going to need to know a little bit more about this enemy. And Paul's done us a great favor by doing a scouting report of our enemy for us. Do you know what a scouting report is? We had them when I played sports. We, we'd get together on the first day of the week and we'd be changed for practice, but before we go to the field, we'd go have a team meeting. And on the table around us that we would sit, there were pieces of paper and we would sit down. And as we would prepare for the week that was coming, we would do all the things that were necessary to continue to get better at the basics and the realities of our sport that made us the team we were. But this report told us about the team that we were about to play, the opponent that we were about to face, their particular patterns, their particular strengths, their particular weaknesses. And so we would tailor part of our preparation to help us get ready for that. Well, Paul does for us a bit of a scouting report on this enemy of our soul, on this enemy of our joy, on this indwelling enemy of God's glory. Paul helps us to see first and foremost the big E on the eye chart about indwelling sin, and that's the depth of its power. Paul does not want us to underestimate the power of indwelling sin. 
he talks about it in terms of a law. Now, you can use the word law in a couple of different ways. You can use the word law to talk about requirements that demand your obedience and punishments for them when you don't obey them. You can talk about speed limits, the law that, re- that, that, that shapes the way we interact with each other on the road. And if you disobey that law, that speed limit, there's a consequence for it. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the law of God, thinking about God's righteous requirements in his word. That's the way we use the word law in that sense. But there's another way that we use the word law. When we talk about the laws of nature, like gravity, it's a principle, it's a power that exerts its will on us, that exerts itself on us, conforming us into its purposes. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you flap your arms, you go up on the top of this building and jump off, gravity is going to exert its will on you. It is a law. It is a principle at work. And Paul is saying that indwelling sin operates just like a law, just like this, like a principle. And it bullies us from the inside, seeking to conform us to its will. But as he continues on in the scouting report, I remember it was one thing to talk about how powerful or how strong an opponent was. It was another thing to sit down on a Monday morning and look at that piece of paper and realize that's who we were facing that week. See, Paul isn't talking about indwelling sin in abstract. He isn't talking about it from a 50,000 foot view. Paul says he recognizes this principle, this law at work within himself. See, Paul was coming to terms with the reality of indwelling sin in his own life. This is one of the places, I think, and we'll talk about it more as we go through Romans chapter 8. This is one of the places where I think the contemporary church differs from the strength of the Apostle Paul. Paul was coming to terms with this reality. He was wrestling with this reality. He was dealing with the power of this reality. I think this is something we like to gloss over and ignore. I think we underestimate the presence and the power of indwelling sin still in our own lives. I think if we better understood it and better came to the reality of its presence in us, we'd hear more about it even as we pray. We'd hear more about it in our conversations with each other. It would sound a whole lot more like, oh, wretched man that I am. Remind me of how God has saved me from this. Paul said it's not just an enemy in the abstract. It's it's an enemy whose power is at work in him and its power was smothering. Its pressure was relentless. Did you hear him? That even when he wanted to glorify God, even when his heart was set at honoring God and glorifying him, and then even when he had a particular good in mind that would reflect God's glory to someone else, some particular good to do, even when it wasn't just his desire to glorify God, but in particular he was going to do it Paul found that the pressure, the smothering presence of indwelling sin was right there with him, pushing back. So that even in our heart, when we desire to see God's grace to us again in the face of Jesus, we open up his word to see Jesus and to be reminded of his grace and to enjoy Jesus right there, pushing back at that very moment. Pushing back against that desire and that delight smothering pressure of indwelling sin with 10,000 other things that our heart would enjoy in that moment. It's there. And Paul says it's tireless. I hated playing guys that seemed like they could run forever. There's nothing more frustrating than that. And Paul says, "I I find it to be a law, a principle at work in me. When I want to do what's right, Evil lies close at hand. It was always there. It never got tired. He could never outrun it. 
And so here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way home from work. And I've got such a tremendous gift that you've given me that I can spend a, a majority of my time throughout the week studying God's word, coming to see him more clearly, that I might be able to teach him more accurately, that I can help you better understand him. But at the same time, more often than I, I wish was the reality, but it's just the reality, I also come face to face with the brokenness of sin and the hearts and lives of people I love. The weight can get crazy. And so as the day begins to end, and I have to prepare to leave and I, I leave the office and I've got to drive to get home. I've got about 15 minutes to get from the office door to my house. And as I walk out on a good day, I recognize that I'm not the one that's supposed to fix so many of the problems that I see or that I hear, that those burdens are something I'm supposed to cast over to the Lord. So I get in my car on a good day and I try as I leave to begin to take those burdens that I feel on my heart and, and cast them over onto the one who can carry them. And then on a good day, I begin to try to prepare my mind because I know I'm going home. And I know when I go home, there, there's something of God's patience, there's something of God's mercy, there's something of God's love and his grace that I am meant to reflect to my wife and to my kids, that he's given me this privilege to do that in my home. And so I have a time between my office and my house when on a good day, I can prepare my mind and my heart for what I'm about to go in and do. And there is a desire in my heart that rises up to honor him in that. And I begin to try to think of particular ways as I get in that I can do that. And so I get in and I, I open up the door and I go in with this delight and this desire to be a reflective presence of God to my family. And then somehow the chaos of my world makes its way down the stairs or in from the backyard and into where I am and Right there in that moment, the opportunity comes for me to do the very thing that I have desired to do and prepared my mind to do. And instead of doing that very thing, there is this strange out-of-body experience that begins to happen. And it's not as though any one of my particular kids has sinned. They're just childish and foolish. And they can't seem to figure it out against each other. And it's like a swarm that comes into the room. And rather than reflecting something of God's patience that I've been thinking about and praying about or his mercy or his wisdom to help them in the moment, something rises up in my heart. And what I want in that moment, in that instant, is for them to recognize that I'm 210 pounds. And if they don't change what they're doing, oh, you want to talk back? Let's go outside. I don't know where that comes from. It's just right there. I'm not a yeller. You can ask my wife. I'm not a yeller. But sometimes something will happen and right there in that moment, I'll just yell. And it's like an out-of-body experience. I'm watching it happen. And guess what? My instinct is not to ask for forgiveness. In my heart, that's a good day. I'll just be honest with you. That's if I prepare myself at times. Sometimes I don't get four exits down the interstate till someone cuts me off. I'm flashing my lights for them to pull over. That doesn't happen often, but you know. So, so there I am. I, I'm desiring to do what's glorifying to the Lord and the privilege that he's given me. And I, I've actually set my heart on particular expressions of his goodness that I can reflect to the people I love. And yet I'm, I'm doing the very thing I hate. That right there, in that desire, evil lies close at hand. 
and I'm not doing the thing that I love. I'm not doing the thing that I desire to do. Wretched man that I am, I get it. If I better understood the the presence and the potential power of indwelling sin, I'd understand it all the more. Wretched man that I am. Is there any good news for perpetual failures like me? Paul says yes. A million times yes. The law of sin, the bullying power of sin, it does not get the last word. And it's not the whole story. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We spent our Easter Sunday last week marveling at this good news. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the condemnation that we deserve from God for our sin has been taken away. The judgment that we deserved for our sin, the death that we deserved for that sin, the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin, God has poured out on his son in our place. And now, for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, God acquits us of that sin. He counts us righteous. He justifies us. He looks at us as forgiven, no longer guilty because of Jesus. But then comes verses two through four. Then comes more hope and good news for those who delight in the Lord in their heart yet find themselves continuing to do the very things they hate. Paul says in verse two, four, that's because. Because of what? Because we are justified by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. The law, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there's that law Paul's talking about, the law of sin and death that's bullying us from the inside, trying to conform us to its will. That law that we can't seem to get ourselves out of doing the very things we hate. Wretched man that I am. Paul just said another principle, another power has set us free from that law. The law that seeks to destroy our soul, rob our assurance and joy. It's not the end of the story. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, you and I would be left enslaved to that law of sin. We would be left captive to its will. My friends here this morning who have tasted the good news of God's grace in Christ Jesus, because you are in Jesus, Paul says there is another law at work in you. There is another principle exerting its force in you for your good and the glory of God. And this principle, this law, Paul says, has set you free. That's what he says. You see it? It set you free. What's it set you free from? The enslaving and condemning law of sin that would lead to your deserved death. Paul says God has not only condemned sin in the flesh of his son in your place, Paul says God has now given you an entirely new power. The spirit of life has taken up residence in your heart and has set you free from the condemning law of sin and death. By the grace of God, Paul says, the law of the spirit of life is now at work in you. So there's no more condemnation for you. Not less, not diminished, not deferred, no more condemnation and, and 
The power of God's spirit has set you free and is at work in you for your good and God's glory. In fact, this this little phrase right here, this sentence, verse two, it's like a second doorway. If, If Paul's opening up the door to the gospel to us again in Romans eight, he's opening up another door now in verse two. And for the rest of chapter eight, it's gonna be amazing to read it and watch for it this week. It's gonna be amazing going through it. Paul is now letting us in to what God not only has done, but is continuing to do for sinners like us by his grace through his spirit. This is one of the best chapters in the entire Bible on God the Holy Spirit and what God does on behalf of us in the past, in the present, and in the future. 20 times, Paul is gonna take us back to the ongoing work of God the Spirit in our lives, on our behalf. Read it this week. Begin to watch it, begin to listen for it. In Christ Jesus, there is pardon from sin and there is power over sin. I love how one commentator put it. He said, it's God's spirit coming to the believer with power and authority that brings liberation. That's freedom. That sets you free from the enslaving power of sin and death and from the condemnation that is the lot of all who are imprisoned by sin itself. What hope does Paul begin to hold out for sinful saints like me? For sinful saints like you? Through Christ Jesus, God has removed all condemnation and he has set you free from the power of sin. And he has put his very spirit, the spirit of life, in control in your heart. Friends, when was the last time that you, that you honestly, intentionally, sat back and gave any moment of consideration to just how good God has been to you in setting you free? And when was the last time you gave any intentional consideration to the enslaving patterns Habits, desires, thoughts, attitudes, behaviors that you can look back and recognize that God has not only freed you from the condemnation of through his son, but has set you free from the enslaving power of by the spirit that continues to work in you. When was the last time you sat down and recognized those evidences of his ongoing grace at work in your life? When you reminded yourself specifically, not just how good God is, but how good God has been and continues to be to you. When was the last time you considered any of those patterns, behaviors, and enslaving desires that God has set you free from the power of and thought, how can I encourage someone else in God's goodness towards me through sharing this with them? Friends, if you consider just how good God is and how good he has been to you in delivering you from the enslaving power of sin. I mean, here's the thing, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves this morning, it's, it's a lot easier for us to believe that we are free from the guilt of sin. No condemnation, forgiven. It's a lot easier for us to believe that and begin to even enjoy that than it is for many of us to believe that we're free from the enslaving power of sin. Because we see it every day. We see sin in our hearts every day. 
We're confronted with it every single day. Friends, this is where Paul again opens wide the doors of the gospel and begins to pull us in to help us be able to deal with that doubtful reality. Listen to what he says in verse 3. Four. He's back to because again. Four. He's answering the question, how are we free from condemnation and the enslaving power of sin? If that's true for you as you are in Christ Jesus, how in the world did it happen? Because when the doubts begin to come, when you begin to struggle again to believe that you are free from the bullying power of that sin and that that's all you'll ever be, that you have any way to overcome those patterns and behaviors, when you begin to doubt it again, Paul goes back to remind us, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do. Now Paul's using law in the other sense here. Now you've got to follow his pattern. Paul's not using law here talking about the principle of sin or the principle of the power of the Spirit. He's talking about the, the righteous requirements of God. And he says there are two things that the law, the righteous requirements of God, can never do. They can never, ever condemn sin. And they can never remove our condemnation. Paul's reminding us that the righteous requirements of God, no matter how hard we try to keep them, no matter how resolved we are to live up to them, no matter how much willpower and grit we put towards remember them and remembering them and applying them to our lives, they could never make us right with God and they could never make us into the person, the kind of righteous person we desire to be. The law in and of itself, no matter how hard we tried to keep it, no matter how determined we were to obey it, never gave us what we needed to save ourselves. Never gave us what we needed to save anyone else. We've never had and never will have the capacity to obey our way into God's favor. But that's not the law's fault. The problem isn't with God's righteous requirements. In fact, if you go back and read chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says that God's righteous requirements, the law, are holy. The weakness, so to speak, of the law is that it was never purposed by God to redeem sinners like us. In fact, go back as you read this week. Read Romans chapter 7. Paul says that as the law of God came, as he began to understand the law of God, the law of God showed him not only what was required of him, but it showed him how often he failed. The law of God showed him his sin. It showed him his condemnation and it incited that sinful desire within him. One pastor said it could, the law of God can identify our sin. It can name our sin. It can point us away from our sin, but at the same time it stirs up our sin and it rubs it in our face. But it can never remove our punishment. It can never set us free from sin's power. And I take the time I did to say that because if you're anything like me, when you come face to face with the presence of indwelling sin in your own life, as I'm having that out-of-body experience in my house, what in the world is going on in me that wants to intimidate a nine-year-old into obedience? And you come face to face with the ugliness that still remains the instinct in my heart is to go, how do I do it better tomorrow? 
recognizing what's happening, I go, you know what? I need to start getting ready in my mind earlier on my trip home. You know what? I need to write some things down on post-it notes and put them on my dashboard or on my window. I need to remember this so the next time I hear that kid say that, I can say this this time and do this. All of a sudden, the natural instinct in my heart is to go and try to fix what I did through my own willpower. I can make myself a better dad. I'll make myself a better husband. I remember what God requires of me here. I'll do it better tomorrow. I'll figure out how to resolve in my mind to work harder. Or yet I'll quit. I'm never going to be able to do that. Friends, what Paul is telling us is that the law could never make us right with God in itself. And the law could never make me the kind of dad I want to be. Because the law in and of itself cannot overcome the power of indwelling sin in me. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I tried to keep it, no matter how obedient I tried to be, it could never set me free from the enslaving power of sin in me. But, Paul says, remember what God has already done for you. He's going to get way more specific later on in Romans chapter 8 with how we begin to put to death the power of this sin continuing to work in us. But at the beginning, he's reminding us of what God has already done to clear the deck in our favor. God, Paul says, has sent his own son. You may remember this from last week, in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Very specifically, Paul says, God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's very important. Paul didn't say he sent him in sinful flesh because that would imply that Jesus was with sin and Jesus knew no sin. And Paul didn't say he sent him in the likeness of flesh because Jesus was a real man. What Paul said is that God sent his own son who took on the likeness of sinful flesh. And in his life here on earth, he lived the life that God created you and I to live. A life of perfect obedience to the righteous requirements of God, not out of grit, not out of resolve, not out of duty, but out of love. He loved the Lord God, his father, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. The life that God created us to live. And then he laid his life down as a substitute in our place. And in our place, God poured out his righteous wrath, his judgment on his son, the judgment that we deserve for the life that we live instead. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he condemned sin in the flesh. He poured out that condemnation on Jesus. So now there's no longer any condemnation for us in Christ because God condemned Jesus in our place. In order that, here's the purpose clause, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And don't miss this. It's in Jesus' life, his obedience to the righteous requirements of God, his delightful obedience to his father, loving him with all that he was, loving his neighbor as himself. It's in that that Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And now what Paul says is that by the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit applies Jesus' perfection to us. And now Jesus' fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law and God's condemnation of sin in our place, in his son, isn't just done for us. It's accomplished in us. And the presence of God the Holy Spirit is alive and at work now by the grace of God in us, continuing to conform us into the image and likeness of the son. 
And we no longer live enslaved by the power of sin. The power of indwelling sin, the law of sin and death, no longer has the last word. It doesn't get the final say. There's another power on another law that has broken the power of the law of sin and death and is now at work ruling and reigning in our heart. It's the law of life, the spirit of God. This is the hope Paul begins to hold out for those of us who are in Christ Jesus yet continually find ourselves over and over and over again doing the very thing we despise and teetering on the edge at times of wanting to give up. I don't know that anybody has said it better, summed it up better than John Bunyan. Some of you might be familiar with this. It's, it's somewhat famous. Bunyan wrote this and I think it's gonna endure to eternity. He said, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. The righteous requirements of God, the law of God, the moral commands of God, they say, run, John, run. This is what you're to do. We're gonna lay it out, go do it. Run, run, run. Here is how you live a life for the glory of God and for your greatest joy. Go do it. But the law can't give you what you need to do it. It can't give you the feet and the hands to run the race. It couldn't give you what you needed to overcome your sinful inability to do it. It couldn't give you what you needed to stand right before God. It couldn't give you what you needed to be free from that enslaving reality of sin. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and it gives me wings. Friends, the way that we overcome in those moments the indwelling sin that continues to reside in us, that has been defeated but is not gone. The way that I in those moments are able to love my wife and my kids in a way that reflects God's love towards me, it's, it's not by turning again to the holy and right commandments of God that define for me how I am to love them and interact with them and resolve that tomorrow I'm gonna do it better. It's not in going, reminding myself again, what does God require of me in this moment? Okay, tomorrow I'm gonna get that straight. Oh, here's how I missed it today. I should have said this this way. I should have reminded myself earlier. Tomorrow, I'll just work harder. I'll get home a little bit earlier. I'll ease my transition into the house a little bit better. Maybe I'll come in the back door. They won't see me. I get an extra minute to prepare myself. I don't overcome that reality and that failure by turning back to the law and going, oh, this is how I'm gonna get it right. I do it by turning to the risen Christ, to my living Redeemer, and to his power that's at work within me. And I recognize again that my ability to overcome the presence of indwelling sin in that moment that wants to exert my will and my force on those people and not reflect that which I have received from God. The power to overcome that isn't my resolve. The power to overcome that is the very spirit of God dwelling within me, working and willing for his good pleasure in my joy. That my potential to be the husband and the dad that God calls me to be, that my heart wants to be, it doesn't rest in my ability to get it all right. That potential has been completely redefined, not by my willpower, but by the presence of God's power at work within me. Friends, we don't turn back to the commands to get it right. Return to the work of God's grace on our behalf through his son and by his spirit. I mean, what gets my heart out of the mess that it finds itself in after desiring to do 
what's right, to glorify God, yet doing the very thing I don't want to do. What gets my heart out of that mess, lying in bed when no one else is awake and I can hear my own voice condemning me, telling me I've, I've caused ir- irsufferable and irreparable harm to my kids. If I don't wake up tomorrow morning, that's what they're going to think of me. That's what they're going to get. If I can't be this kind of father to my own kids and husband to my own wife, how is God going to commit his goodness to me? How do I get my heart out of that kind of mess when I want to honor him and glorify him, yet I find myself doing the very thing that I hate? The first thing Paul says, he's going to help us in Romans 8, practically begin to put these things to death. But the first thing Paul says is that I remind myself of what God has already done. That voice that wants to continue to condemn me. Paul says, I've already condemned that sin in my son. There's no more condemnation for you. I condemned that sin in him. And then Paul says, I'm to remind myself that not only has God condemned that sin in his son in my place, God has broken the power of that sin in my heart by his spirit. And he has put his spirit, the spirit that raised his son from the dead, he has put his spirit in my heart to continue to work to conform the delights and the desires of my heart to conform to his. That piece by piece and bit by bit and day by day in dependence upon his grace and the work of his spirit, he is conforming me from the inside out to better reflect to everyone around me the mercy and the love that he has shown me in his son. What gets my heart out of the mess It's seeing Jesus again. It's going back and seeing Jesus again, living the life that God created me to live, seeing Jesus again, loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself with joy. It's seeing Jesus again, loving me to the point of laying down his life, dying in my place for my sin, suffering the wrath of God in my place for my rebellion. It's seeing Jesus again, raised from the dead, rising, ascending to the right hand of God the Father where he rules and reigns right now, ever living to intercede for me and giving me his very spirit to continue to do that work in me, conforming me into his likeness and putting to death the remaining power of sin in me. What gets my heart out of the mess? It's seeing and enjoying Jesus again. Friends, this is how sinful saints grow more like Christ and grow more like Christ in a way that glorifies God and not ourselves going back again to all of those good and right and holy commands and thinking that it's up to my resolve and my strategy and my grit and my willpower to be a better dad and a better husband and a better friend, who does that bring glory to? That's me. It's about me. Just like Paul said, those requirements, that law, they're holy, they're good, they're right, they're for my joy, my good and God's glory, but, but, the way in which my heart is shaped to grow more like Christ and reflect those righteous good things is by turning back to the living Christ and delighting in what God has done and continues to do for me by his son and through his spirit. Paul opens up the door for us in Romans chapter eight, just in the very beginning. For those who love God with all of their heart, soul, mind and strength and want to glorify him, yet find themselves doing the very things they hate. Paul says, remember, indwelling sin does not get the last word. 
the surpassing greatness of the power of God the Holy Spirit. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you by the grace of God. And he is working in you for your joy and to conform you into the image and likeness of Christ to the glory of God. It doesn't get the last word. The power and the presence of indwelling sin is not the measure of your potential. Your potential is now measured by the limitless power and presence of God the Holy Spirit alive and at work in you. This morning as we prepare to respond to God's word together as his people, in a few minutes for those who have repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus, you're gonna be invited to come forward to remember Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection in your place for your sins as you receive communion. We're gonna sing, we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate, we're gonna be sent out from here, but before we do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let the prayer of the Apostle Paul be our prayer for ourselves and each other this morning as he pleads with God on behalf of his people to open up again our hearts and our minds to a renewed delight and the surpassing greatness of God's grace and power at work for us. And then we're gonna give you a couple of minutes to reflect on your own, to pray and to respond to God before we come and receive communion together. So let me let Paul pray for us and then we'll give you a moment to reflect. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul would plead with God as he prays for his people this way. Father, enlighten our hearts to understand the surpassing greatness of the power of your work towards us in Jesus. Father, open up our hearts to see, to delight in, to enjoy, to savor, to treasure the surpassing greatness of your power towards us in Jesus, taking the condemnation we deserve in our place for our sin, handing to us the righteousness that he deserved for his obedience and his joy giving us his very spirit that raised him from the dead. Enlighten our hearts to understand and to enjoy the surpassing greatness of the power of your work to us in Jesus, the same power that raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand, and put all things under his feet as he rules for your glory and our joy. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.